Welcome to this week's Fit for Purpose podcast. This week we're talking to the Vice Chancellor of Plymouth Marjon University, Rob Warner. Plymouth Marjon is a university that does a huge amount for its local community and we're going to get onto that levelling up strategy in a sense the university um, has shortly. But it's also a university that is playing more than its role on making sure that local public services have the skilled workforces that they need for the wider Devon economy to thrive. But it's brilliant to have Rob here today and fantastic to have him involved in the levelling up goals work that we are involved with. Rob, tell us a little bit, for people who are less familiar perhaps with Plymouth Marjon or, or indeed a bit of the world that you're in, tell us a little bit about what the university does and majors on and the sorts of graduates and students that you're working with day to day. Thank you, Justine. Well, the uh, university was actually the first teacher training college in England. It was founded in London. Um, its first cohort included some from the local workhouse and then a second college that became a constituent part of what became this university <clears throat> started just up the road in Chelsea and the first principal there was Samuel Taylor Coleridge's son and he actually wrote a, a public mock apology for inconvenient excellence <laughs> saying that he made no apology for, to, for educating the poor to become teachers and giving them the best education he could possibly find. Well, really that's continued. We were moved uh, by government to Plymouth in the 1970s with a vision to serve particularly Devon and Cornwall. Now, mm -hmm. you may not know this from outside the area, Justine, but there's very strong rivalry between Devon and Cornwall. <laughs> Um, but nonetheless, we're very careful to say we serve both counties and both counties have um, similar needs in terms of levelling up. So there's quite a lot of rural deprivation, quite a lot of coastal deprivation and quite a lot of people who've grown up in very tight knit communities which for those of us who are used to a high level of geographical mobility is very attractive, but it does have its downside. And its downside is that quite often people are reluctant uh, to study, train or get a job outside their immediate locale. So uh, the fact is that we've got lots of people in this region who if they were in another region, would actually have the chance to train for a profession or go to university uh, in terms of their ability, but we're not the yet leveled up. There is an opportunity gap still there. Mm -hmm. So just to illustrate that, the UCAS 2020 figures showed 49% of 18-year-olds in London going to university, 32% in the Southwest. So that means if you lined up six 18-year-olds in London, three would go to university. In the Southwest, two would go, and you'd turn to one and say, sorry, you live in the wrong part of the country to go to university. Other pressures will win out for you. And the fact is, more of those who miss out are those where no one else in the family has gone to university, and the family 
um, uh, is born and bred in the Southwest and is a bit cautious about educational opportunity. So we've got a long way to go to level up in the Southwest. Rob, obviously universities are often <laughs> part of these university league tables um, and it's all a bit fraught, but I think it's probably fair to say that you can take some real pride in the ones that came out in the Times and Sunday Times Good University Guide 2022 rankings. Tell us a little bit about the results and, and in a sense, why they were so important for you. Uh, I'll run through some headlines, Justine. Uh, they ranked as first for teaching quality, first for learning community, first for the student union, second for social inclusion, second for learning opportunities, third for support during COVID, and fifth for student experience. Now, they are absolutely fantastic results. And I think they reflect the fact the students describe themselves as the Marjon family. And uh, we often talk with the staff about being a learning community where we seek to respect and include every individual. And I think it's a tribute to the staff and students um, that it's working, that we can do great things as a small university um, that will transform our students' life opportunities. And obviously, I mean, the history is incredible. So it's, the, it's these two teach, teacher training colleges um, that then merge and, and then also move. But I mean, latterly, you've massively focused on, in spite of some of the challenges you've talked about, making sure that you are part of the solution on how you increase the access of people around Devon and Cornwall uh, to be able to come to a place like Plymouth Marjon. Tell us a little bit about the work upstream in schools and communities, because I think it, it's really interesting to hear about how you go about that. So there's a lot of work in schools recognising that um, uh, for many, they've got no previous contact with university. Um, it begins early on. Um, so 11 to 14s can be part of a programme called Marjon Scholars that mm -hmm. allows them to visit campus and it allows them to do some of their studies on campus to uh, identify and strengthen their academic aptitudes. Um, in uh, year 12, uh, there's a summer school, and that helps focus on education and initial teacher training. There's a GCE Easter school, mm -hmm. which helps students seek to attain their target GCE grades. Um, because that's clearly a pre a, an important preparation for university. Then there are, there are careers, classes, and other academic opportunities. Uh, for some primary schools, they come to our campus and have forest school experiences. Uh, there's a woodland within the campus, and there's quite a lot of biodiversity. But then we also have on campus a lot of sports clubs and performing arts clubs, so that that gives a chance for us to serve the community, but also for children and young people to come onto a university campus. And we hope to begin to feel this is somewhere I could actually study and feel at home for three years. So a lot of this is about really opening up the university itself very physically to local people, but also then working massively upstream at an early age, actually with schools so that their contact with a, an institution like Plymouth Marjon becomes pretty 
pretty normal and something that's not at all unusual. I think that's really important. So I think that this this helps young people feel that university is something that could be accessible for them. Um, if they've only seen rather grand pictures of Oxford and Cambridge on TV, um, it's quite difficult for them to make the imaginative leap to feel that there's somewhere they could feel at home at university. So we feel that this is a really important task, not only academic preparation, but also socialising them into the possibility mm -hmm. of belonging at university. And of course, when they get there, um, they've arrived at a place that gets, I mean, fantastic ratings for social inclusion and for teaching quality, for student experience. If, certainly if you look at the Times and Sunday Times Good University Guide 2022 for next year, you know, you're right up at the, the top of that. How do you manage to make sure that, you know, with a, such a mixed cohort, you're able to deliver ratings, if you like, from their perspective? That, that are so positive? Well, there's an awful lot of personal attention. So all students have a personal development tutor who will talk things through with them. Not least, we'll talk through the imposter syndrome because for many of their first in family at university, there will be something of a crisis of, have I really deserved to be here in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, like many universities, we've got 24 seven library support. We've actually got some tutors based in Australia who deal with students' questions in the middle of the night because we've discovered wow. that for some of our students, between about midnight and 2 a.m. is a peak time for them to want to ask questions about things like structuring an essay argument and things like that. Um, there's um, oracy training. There's opportunities for them to have jobs on campus uh, because we think that's important for them to learn um, uh, both how to do an interview, how mm -hmm. to write a CV, but then also how to perform on a job in an appropriate and professional way. The other side of this is impressing on all staff that we all have a responsibility to uh, build a sense of opportunity for our students. So we say that we're centred on student success, and that means that we impress not only on the frontline academics, but on all members of staff, mm -hmm. every single member of staff has a part to play in building the confidence and the capacity of our students. So if you like, you could say, we're all trying to invest in the development of social capital for those who come to university without the kind of savoir-faire that some middle-class students have on day one. And clearly that's crucial because it's important if they're going to connect up to a lot of the opportunities that are out there. But it's worth just talking a little bit about going back to your roots in a way. I mean, obviously pr producing teachers that absolutely that wider community needs, but now for the university, of course you go, you know, a lot further than that. And there are lots of different areas where young people and, and mature students can study. But give us a sense of, if you like, those roots perhaps in teaching, and I guess latterly also healthcare, they're still a big part of what makes Plymouth Marjon tick in a way. It's a very important part. Um, when uh, the government started to produce something called the LEO data, 
Um, to be honest, I was concerned that if there wasn't weighting by region, uh, the southwest might be one of those areas that would be disadvantaged because maybe they, um, maybe Rob also tell us about the Leo what Leo data was. I mean, it, obviously I know it very well, but um, for, for people listening who are less familiar, what what's so what the Leo data does is take um, from the tax office uh, the average earnings of graduates five years after graduation. Um, now, it turns out when you look at it, it's quite complicated data, and it does mean inevitably that on the whole, if graduates move to London, they get better salaries. So that's something as a nation we have to do something about to spread the opportunity more effectively across the country. But when it looked at Marjon teachers, we discovered five years after graduation, that they were earning on average the highest salaries of, of young teachers across the Southwest and Wales. So that helped us to say that we were training them not only to be job ready, first job ready, mm -hmm. but we were actually preparing them to be promotion ready. So that's an integral part really then of how we describe what we do for the teachers. But of course, there are nowadays many other uh, professions and vocations that do require uh, a degree uh, for entry. So things like speech and language therapy, osteopathy, certain forms of youth and community work, um, all of these areas do uh, require um, a degree to go on, get on the get on the road. So I think what's helped us to expand into um, uh, NHS delivery, for example, is that the very model of teacher training combines theoretical training to degree level with on-the-job practice and reflection by going into schools on placement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that very much reflects patterns of uh, NHS training as well. I think one way in which the NHS, I think, is going to need to uh, adapt further its models of training is that we've identified in the Southwest, but I think this is almost certainly true universally. There are quite a few uh, women with children who left education early in their first pregnancy mm -hmm. who have the ability to train to become a nurse or an allied health professional who have a commitment to the region in which they're living. They don't want to move away, but they would need more adaptable models of training for future careers in the NHS. So I think that the crisis within the NHS of shortages of staff and the presence in our country of these women, often in their 20s or 30s, if we put that together, and found flexible training methods. I think we could go a very long way to addressing those skills and staff shortages in the NHS. And often a lot of them are locally driven and the, the, the people who are most likely to want to respond to a, a call in a sense to plug gaps in nursing or healthcare within the Southwest are people who already live there and are, are properly invested. And that does mean that a university like Plymouth Marjon really working through how to create that pathway then becomes absolutely pivotal doesn't it in solving that regional problem? It's really important it's important for us but it's important I think in every region in the country to see that we have um, in effect an untapped 
workforce with the ability to be developed to higher level skills to make a profound difference actually to the well-being of the entire country. Um, a related factor actually is that um, uh, to some extent in Devon, but particularly in Cornwall, uh, a lot of the teachers are within 10 years of retirement. Mm -hmm. um, and the data from Cornwall suggests that um, uh, it's one of those parts of the country where it's lovely to go for a holiday, but schools say it's actually quite difficult to persuade people to go there as teachers. Mm -hmm. So in a similar way, there's a conversation from Cornwall Council and from um, a, a number of uh, schools and networks of schools in Cornwall saying we need to be training more local people who have a prior commitment to the region so that they become the teaching workforce of tomorrow. So this, I, so I think that's absolutely right. And I think the, this, this issue of almost building the local capacity then becomes absolutely crucial, doesn't it? in a sense and there will be there may well be more people who I think because of the pandemic uh, have really reassessed their lives their 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 where they want to live and of course you know you're in a beautiful part of the world but fundamentally the issue is going to remain that you know those skill shortages you've got in the region are probably best plugged by the region and, and that's where where a university and, and the sort of higher education institution that Plymouth Modern is becomes so crucial and, and actually your role as an anchor institution is probably also to to sort of be a catalyst for this to happen not in a sense as you say Rob not just necessarily wait to be asked but to be one of those one of those institutions that's out there convening and making the proposals. Absolutely we need um, we want to be but we need across the region across the country sorry uh, universities willing to experiment and to work with the NHS as prototypes for new models of training to build the workforce that we all desperately need. And more broadly, obviously Plymouth Marjon focuses on employability and then connecting its, its graduates up with those, those opportunities that are there. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, the Marjon Futures work how you approach supporting your students and that that broader development that you're engaged with them making sure that, that they have so that they really are as you said before career ready well students um, are given a, a a career mentor um so that as early as possible they're encouraged to uh, get involved with identifying their skills and their transferable skills. It's quite difficult sometimes for a student to realize quite how many skills and aptitudes they are beginning to discover in themselves. And who so, would that mentor be just out of interest, Rob? What kind of person is it? Well, we've got um, a whole cluster of uh, people, uh, male and female, who've been identified as having the right strengths. They have to be people who are approachable, who aren't threatening. Um, and who can elicit from the student both their aspirations, mm -hmm. but also the kinds of things they're already doing. Just to give you an example, if someone is president of an undergraduate society, uh, they've almost certainly got some leadership skills and organisational skills that others can see in them. 
but sometimes the student finds it difficult to make the connection between what I do as a student because it just comes naturally to me and what I might do in future in the workplace. So it needs to be people who un understand how to join the threads, as it were, of skills in the workplace and skills that people are actually exhibiting as students. And so you were about to talk about this broader work then that Marjorie Futures does. So there's the mentoring and then that presumably connects up with a lot of other work to make sure they're career ready. There's mentoring, uh, there are placements. Um, so uh, all uh, students have the opportunity for some kind of work placement. Um, and we encourage that as much as possible. Um, we've got um, uh, a good sum of money through the new Turing scheme to support students um, with study opportunities overseas, because we recognise that the students who do go overseas, um, even if it's just for a term, uh, they actually tend to come back and it's as if they've been in a hothouse. So they've matured far more than the number of weeks involved and it tends to enlarge um, their um, future career opportunities. Um, so it's whether it's placements, conversations, CV building. Uh, we also make sure that um, we're trying to employ as many students as possible on campus both during their time as undergrads, but then when appropriate as graduate interns as well. Um, and the process of going through for those positions means that students can practice in a safe environment, letters of application, CVs, interview technique. Every student is given feedback on their interviews mm -hmm. as to how they can develop themselves. So there's a lot of um, coaching and mentoring, which is almost surreptitiously built into the fabric of the mm -hmm. university. I think it is really interesting. So, so you're making sure that, that what can be for lots of, of young people and, and mature students, a difficult transition out of the, the course they've been doing and then into that first, that first step on a, on a career really managing the risks around that, but also helping to develop people's skills so that they're, they're absolutely able to hit the ground running. And it's, that's doubly important. It's helping them to believe in themselves and it's helping them to articulate their abilities um, in ways that will work in the workplace. Um, and both of those are absolutely uh, essential. Now, there's a couple of areas I also want to ask you about. But the first is actually the work that you're doing um, with the armed forces, which, are, which is fascinating. It's, it's quite tailored, isn't it, to mm -hmm. a particular kind of student, if I can put it like that. Uh, and obviously very much ties in with the military presence that I guess Plymouth's got a very proud history of having on its doorstep. Plymouth absolutely identifies um, as a military or more precisely as a naval um, city. Um, our uh, local MP uh, is ex-army. Our chair of governors, as it happens, is also ex-army. Um, and uh, just as uh, Plymouth uh, has a very large number of people who are in or have been in the Navy, um, a nearby market town called Tavistock 
seems to be um, a magnet for retirees from the army. So yes, there's a very high level uh, within the region. So um, a key development for us has been um, uh, study opportunities that are relevant and work for those who are preparing to leave the military. Mm -hmm. And uh, so while for some, uh, uh, entering into a standard degree programme alongside others is absolutely the right thing to do. Um, for others, the sense of uh, professional development that builds on their expertise and that allows them to feel that they're part very much of a peer group of those in the military mm. who are moving on to new things, uh, that seems to work very well for them. Um, and of course, because we know, again, that as a nation, we've actually not been that good at ensuring career progression beyond the military. Mm. Um, I think this kind of educational opportunity is one of the constructive elements of uh, seeking to make a difference, a continued difference for those who've been serving the country in this way. The next area I really wanted to ask you about, Rob, was the health and wellbeing agenda. I mean, obviously, it ties very much into what you were all about anyway as a university, but it's a big part of how you then work more broadly with the with the local communities that you're part of. We've talked a lot about like the pathways on education that you're creating and then into opportunity, but you do so much more than that, don't you? Well, yes, the, uh, so I think it all began with um, uh, sports science and coaching degrees and a sports centre, but then it evolved from that to have health and wellbeing initiatives uh, for staff and students, but also for the community. So we're very keen to ensure that um, staff have the opportunities to get their backs sorted and things like that. Um, as well as having things like reading groups um, or yoga groups. But the students who are studying programmes like osteopathy, uh, they uh, need to have clinics where they have hand-on supervised experience. Now, those clinics have then evolved, I think really I would say in two ways. First of all, uh, serving particular organisations. So um, the police force sends people through and they have health checks. Usually it's the first health check they've had uh, in their um, lives, but they have health checks, they have physiotherapy and they have op on, usually on bad backs. Mm -hmm. um, but they also talk about um, self-managing a healthy lifestyle. The same kind of thing is done, has been done with the fire brigade and with bus drivers um, and indeed with the uh, Met Office as well. So sometimes it's a large employer referring cohorts of their staff through mm -hmm. just to seek to rebalance a sense of health and well-being. But the other dimension of this is working very much um, closely uh, with the NHS and NHS partners, uh, including uh, uh, Macmillan uh, Cancer Care, um, so that we provide clinics. And if I describe some of the things that are treated, there are back pain clinics, there are um, cancer pre-op clinics, um, 
there are, my mind has just gone a blank, there, there are leg ulcer clinics, uh, there are clinics for those um, who are getting towards or who have entered retirement. But in all these kinds of clinics, the model is, is really the same, not only seeking to address the presenting physical needs, mm -hmm. but also to give the patient a sense of agency and responsibility and capacity to take charge of their own health and well-being. Now, this chimes very effectively with a growing narrative within the NHS that there is a problem with people going to the GP or the hospital to be fixed. And yeah. the problem is that the patient can become passive. Do, do it to me and there's nothing that I can do. Whereas our clinics are deliberately in a non-medical environment where appropriate, there are nurses or others present, fully qualified to ensure the safety, of course, of the patient. But the patient in our environment is someone who's being helped by the students to take a kind of active responsibility uh, with their own health. And the feedback that we get um, from our NHS partners is actually this model um, is helping enormously um, and that they are seeing people make significant progress in taking responsibility and recovering the sense of a healthy lifestyle. So this is a pattern of work that uh, we believe in the Southwest has made a very significant difference. Um, and now some of the organizations I mentioned earlier are actually training their own teams to roll out this sort of pattern of active health and well-being for their employees and, or their clients. And I think Devon and Cornwall Police are one of those where you've now trained the trainer, as it were, and, and they now go and, as you say, share those, share those learnings with the wider organisation. Absolutely. And I think that's tremendously exciting, not least because... Um, as it were, front of house in all of this are students. So sometimes, you know, the public image of a student is that they're always in bed or they're always drunk or always at another party or whatever. But these are students serving older adults and helping older adults both um, achieve an effective, active, healthy lifestyle, or in the case of these different organisations like the police, helping the police train their own staff mm -hmm. to do this kind of thing. So this is students, while they are still students, making a difference in the public realm. Now, I think that's a very exciting thing. It is, and I, I think that what we've tried to get from a lot of the work that we've been doing, not just with universities, but also with businesses, is really to find those models that make a difference. And then through all of the coalition, start to spread that best practice. And I think this is a classic example of something that does have clear benefits. And as you say, it's a win-win both for the community and some of those employers, but also the students who are part of it. Now, I really wanted to maybe um, finish, Rob, by asking you about your own journey. I mean, obviously, I think like me, you're massively passionate about social mobility and, and really developing people to reach their potential. But 
I'm going to guess that most people when they're at school or whatever aren't necessarily thinking that they're going to go on and become the vice chancellor of the university. What was your journey into this role that you're in now? Oh, my journey was very um, complicated. And that reflects, I suppose, the fact that more and more people's uh, adult life is likely to see more than one uh, career. Mm -hmm. So um, my parents were both born on a council estate. So they were the, uh, they were the first uh, in their families to take out a mortgage and own their own home. I was the first in family to go uh, to university. Mm -hmm. So having gone to university, I actually initially had a career in commercial publishing in London uh, with a firm called Hodders. Um, then uh, I uh, went back to university, studied theology and went into ordained ministry. Um, and then I did a PhD at King's College London. And after that, uh, I went to be a university lecturer. I only managed to be a university lecturer for a year uh, before the head of department approached me and said, would you be interested in taking over as head of department? Um, and really, it, rise. <laughs> it was sort of fast, <laughs> fast track from there. But I suppose that means that, I mean, my own experience uh, demonstrates the fact that in, a, in the fluid workplace that we all now inhabit, transferable skills are an absolutely essential quality um, and leadership skills where they're recognized uh, can be put to good use in entirely different types uh, of environment. But yes, like you, I absolutely and passionately believe in equality of opportunity. So that means that uh, I believe that uh, for the sake of the individual, but actually also for the sake of the nation, we need to make sure that everyone is given the opportunity to discover and fulfill their potential. That doesn't mean that all should go to university, but it should mean that all with the ability to succeed at university should, in my view, be given that chance. I totally agree with you. I think it's about enabling a choice for people, isn't it? Whoever they are, wherever they're from. And if they've got that capacity to go, then it should be a choice that, that people can make. You had probably one of the, the more eclectic career paths um, of people that <laughs> I've, I've interviewed on this podcast. Um, but if you were reflecting back on the journey so far, there's obviously quite a way to go. But if you were reflecting back and thinking, right, based on my experience, maybe what's the advice I give to other people who are perhaps earlier on in that journey, still at school or, or maybe on the early rungs of, of their own career. What do you think you'd say to people? Or maybe what's the advice that you'd give to a, a younger Rob Warner, perhaps? I think I'd say don't be afraid to ask people what they see as your strengths. Now, that's a dangerous question. I've sometimes met someone who's had a very negative uh, dressing down by a school teacher that it's taken them years to recover from. But I would say find someone you really trust and ask them to tell you uh, what your uh, strengths are. I say that because as you ask that question, I remember um, discovering 
um, what someone had put in a reference about me years and years ago. Um, and it was extremely complimentary. Um, and I found myself thinking when I learned it, I wish I could have had a conversation with him um, and he could have talked that through with me and given me advice on how to develop those nascent skills that he identified. There's something a bit British, I think, about it, you know, being a bit reluctant to say, what do you think I'm really good at? Or even being reluctant to tell somebody else what they're really good at. But that perhaps is a piece of advice that I would give to people. Find someone you can really trust and ask them to help you see what you're really good at and how you could develop those skills further. I think that's an absolutely brilliant thought to end on because it's about the positives. And, and, and under, for me, actually, what you're saying underpins why I believe that equality of opportunity really matters because I passionately believe that everybody is brilliant at at least one thing. And when you can identify that thing, then actually often so many other parts of life fall into place and, and, and you, you have a sense of direction often that perhaps wasn't there before. Rob, it's been fantastic having you on the podcast. We are absolutely delighted that you're part of all of this work with Plymouth Marjon on the levelling up goals and really looking forward to that journey that we've got together ahead. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Justine. Pleasure to talk with you.